Welcome back, you guys. This is Morgan Zeggers. We're with Connor Clegg. Hi, everybody. The one and only. And we're both in really good moods right now because this second section of The Federalist is super fun to go through. I'm loving the papers. 36 was or 37 last time was awesome. Today we're doing 38. It's titled The Same Subject Continued and The Incoherence of the Objections to the New Plan Exposed. Exposed. By Madison. Exposed. Nice clickbait title from James. <laughs> oh, it was very, very good. Good job, my friend. Um, I feel so bad petting his head. That is so disrespectful to a founding father. I take it back. That is me. Caress his nose. Taking it back. <laughs> um, well, um, that being said, if you couldn't tell from the title, we're a little sassy this time. And I'm not going to read out a bunch of this. I just want to put a warning out for this episode. We're going to talk about the concepts of it, but I'm not going to read out a bunch of the longer quotes because the quotes are just that good and I don't want to butcher them. It's straight up paragraphs and all of the paragraphs are worthy of actually reading it. So this is definitely one, if you aren't actually into reading these, this is on definitely this one to go, go to my, read yourself. Go to my camera. Oh, you look at that. <laughs> I I usually go through and I'm very I'm not very liberal with my highlighting, but I went through and underlined like every word here because it's just this one continuous thing that's just like boom, 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 boom. So yeah, go read it yourself because it's really good. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly anyway, what I was thinking. No. And I, as I was highlighting this too, because usually I'll highlight the sections that I want to uh-huh. read, I just kept going like line, line, line. Yeah. And I was like, oh boy, I might. Yeah. I might like I found myself just plan. like highlighting the entire page. I was like, well, this is useless. <laughs> right. But it's so, great. And and a lot of this, what's funny is he keeps quoting these ancient people's names uh-huh. and I'm I'm reading it going, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe I'll make Connor read it. But either way, the first part, let's get into it, you yeah. guys. Um, really fun concepts for this. Also, this is one of the ones where we're going to be against the anti-federalists a bit hard on this one, I would say. I'm I always flip back and forth. I see some good points from one side. I see other good points from another. This one, he goes hard against Mm anti-federalists and he does it in a very strategic and blunt way. I like it. I think he did a great job in this one. As usual, I love Madison's style of writing. Connor, let's get started. He says, It is not a little remarkable that in every case reported by ancient history in which government has been established with deliberation and consent, the task of training it has not been committed to an assembly of men, but has been performed by some individual of preeminent wisdom and approved integrity. So he starts out with this. And what he's saying here, you guys, is that out of all of the evaluations they've done of human history's attempts at democracies, republics, confederacies, and other forms of representative government, usually it's actually just been one respected individual that has been put in control of making the structure of the government. And that's not what we had with our founding fathers who all got in a room together and started to deliberate this. So our concept of getting people together, multiple minds together to come up with a plan is unprecedented and not what usually happens. So he says that what he says next, Connor, I'm not going to read this out loud because he goes through multiple examples where this has happened. So Rome, Greece, Athens, all of these places that our founders had evaluated, he lists off the specific names and areas and times throughout history where this has happened. That was right? the one that I couldn't remember yesterday. Brutus. Oh, really? Yeah. My favorite. I was like, Thanks, Caesar? <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> the only well, I was person thinking I can about, think of. I was of. trying to think about uh, who came after Caesar. 
<laughs> well, so he anyway. he does these examples, and that's one of the ones where I want you guys to read it because it's just beautiful. I'm not going to do it justice if I butcher all of their names, but yes, Brutus is one of the people. But later on in the section, he says, they all turned their eyes. So the people of these countries, when they put in charge one person of this responsibility, he says, they all turned their eyes towards the single efforts of that celebrated patriot and sage instead of seeking to bring about a revolution by the intervention of a a deliberative body of citizens. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that. Did you know that? I actually did not. I did not. It's, but it's, uh, it goes to the entire foundation of what America is. It's a, it's a body of citizens who come together and they are united for a common good. And it's not just about, you know, George Washington. It's not just about Hamilton or, or Madison. It's about something that's bigger than all of them. And that's kind of the, the, the recurring theme that we always bring back here is that they're making something bigger than themselves and that will outlast them. Right. Yeah, yeah. What really caught my attention is he calls out how confusing it really was for them to have done this. Mm -hmm. And I want to read this part out. He says, whence could it have proceeded that a people jealous as the Greeks were of their liberty should so far abandon the rules of caution as to place their destiny in the hands of a single citizen? So he's kind of saying it contradicts their worries and their Mm -hmm. desire for a free society to put one person in charge of such an important thing. He says, whence could it have been proceeded that the Athenians, a people who would not suffer an army to be commanded by fewer than 10 generals. So they at least had to have 10 generals, not just a few controlling the military because they were worried about what could happen. He says, and who required no other proof of danger to their liberties than the illustrious merit of a fellow citizen should consider one illustrious citizen as more eligible as a more eligible depository of their fortunes of themselves and their posterity than a single body of citizens from whose common deliberations more wisdom as well as more safety might have been expected. These questions cannot be fully answered without supposing that the fears of discord and disunion among a number of counselors exceeded the apprehensions of treachery or incapacity in a single individual. So what he's saying is they were, he's assuming here and trying to find a reason saying that maybe it was that they were worried that they wouldn't be able to find any solution if they put a bunch of minds together and they wouldn't find a proper solution if they had this this moderate plan created by a bunch of people's different desires and ideas for what society should look like. Mm-hmm. And they felt like it was safer to just trust one person's plan that wasn't all messed up. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes is sense. And it, well, it's also like that it's, easier in some ways, right? Mm. To just go with one wise thinker, like a Socrates of your time, or like uh, like Romulus or Numa or Brutus or, or Tullius or whatever. Um, it's easier to just kind of like pass the buck onto them and then let them come up with it. Because at that, at that time, if it fails, it can also be pointed back to one person, right? And so no one feels personally responsible for the fall of Rome, right? It's be like, well, it's uh, the king who took over or whatever, you know? Um, it was a lot harder to do what they did. It took a lot more work. It was more grinding. It was more effort. But it was it was an investment in something that ended up lasting um, and becoming uh, exceptional, right? So yeah. it's good that they did it. Uh, but he goes on here, and we're going to get into it, just to roast the people who are kind of standing <laughs> in the way of it all. So <laughs> Just roasted them. Um, what he does before that, though, there's mm-hmm. a little section mm-hmm. where he gets into an example. Uh, an, I don't know what the proper poetic term is for this, but he compares what's happening right now with America. They were suffering at the time from the Articles of Confederation. Uh And he compares it similar to a patient experiencing a sickness. Mm -hmm. The sickness in this situation was the Articles of Confederation failing to do its proper job. The country was weakened. There were dangers on our horizons. And the patient is America in this situation. And so he says, What's happening right now is everybody's looking at the patient, America, and saying there are major problems. This patient's going to die soon. And the 
issues are quite urgent. The need for a solution is urgent. And then all of a sudden, after they've come up with the prop, the probable solutions, you have some people coming in saying, oh, but but that might not go very well. So mm-hmm. let's prevent providing a solution, a remedy for the patient, and let's instead just complain and not provide a different remedy or right. solution. And so he's calling them out for that, saying that you're basically letting the patient die because you're worried a potential mm-hmm. solution that will definitely at least be better mm-hmm. than the current situation might be hazardous. Yeah. So I definitely see where they're coming from on that. Do you have any thoughts on on his very, very creative writing there? Well, no, it's, it, it's something that we actually oddly enough, talked about this morning on the Charlie Kirk show is that people on the right all too often are content to kind of just be opposed to those on the left, but they don't actually prevent, they don't actually present a concise, clear vision for what they want to do to make things better, right? Mm. They are just simply opposed to transgenderism. They're opposed to abortion. They're opposed, but they don't actually say, this is what we're going to do to actually help you create a family, to actually help you protect your kids, to actually make a better America, right? It's all just, well, they, they're destroying America, so let us come in and stop it, right? Um, it's a age-old battle, it seems like now, right? For people to just stand in the way and complain and not actually get anything done. And we're dealing with that right now, sadly. And it's incumbent on people who care about America, and this is what Madison was saying here, it's incumbent on people who care about America to actually be those who put forward ideas to make America a better place, not just stand in the way and be a roadblock. You know, it's like, better watch out, we're coming. You know, it's it's like a truck. It's like a truck that is the progress, the true progress, not the progressive progress. It's coming. It's barreling down the road and either get out of the way or get hit. Oh, I love that. Can I be a part of this truck? Yeah, you can get in. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I love that. I'll just be like a dog hanging out the window or I'll be like sitting on the side of the window, rolled down. We'll be we'll, mudding. We'll It'll be it. great. Um, okay. Get out of the country bumpkin phase. You guys, back to this. I want to read a little section from this where he's still talking about the patient concept. For this, he he brings up some questions about the anti-federalists that are saying, oh, we can't possibly do this. He says, such a patient and in such a situation is America at this moment. She has obtained a regular and unanimous advice from men of her own deliberate choice, and she is warned by others against following this advice under pain of the most fatal consequences. Do the monitors deny the reality of her danger? No. <laughs> I love that. So he's he's like, so do the anti-federalists understand that we're facing a very serious problem that needs to be changed immediately? Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. They they don't deny that the problem is very serious. He then says, uh, no, no. Do they deny the necessity of some speedy and powerful remedy? No. No. <laughs> he, they understand that they also need a very fast solution. So then he says, are they agreed? Are any two of them agreed in their objections to the remedy proposed or in the proper one to be substituted? Let them speak for themselves. And that is where he just really mm-hmm. goes in. And so let them speak for themselves. I, again, am not going to read this one out loud, Connor. Per, do you have any quotes that you want to read from this? Because <laughs> this is the section where I just was highlighting, highlighting, highlighting. Yeah. You need to read it for yourself. Because right. he basically goes into a situation breaking down how it's hard to understand what they even want. You're saying that there's problems with the Constitution that we shouldn't ratify. But all of you have different, smaller complaints. Right. And if somebody's complaining about XYZ, the other person is actually complaining about the opposite end of what would happen with XYZ saying, oh, no, it's too much power. Some say it's not enough. Some say it's too much. There is a complaint or a complainer for every aspect of the Constitution. And you can't just credit an aside 
for and give them a lot of credibility when they aren't proposing a legitimate outcome or right. opportunity to fix these things other than finding little individual complaints. Yeah. This was the page that I showed you at the very beginning where I just underlined the entire page, basically. Yeah. Um, it's all really good. Basically, what he's saying is that the, the, the anti-federalists couldn't get their crap together, right? They're all yeah. just they're all just angry and they're all just upset at the federalists, but they're not actually really interested in proposing new solutions or ideas to uh, make something work here. They weren't willing at this point to, to engage in the Great Compromise. They weren't willing to actually get something done and put pen to paper and sign the, and the Constitution at this point. We know how the story ends, but uh, it, it's right that Madison is kind of calling him out here, and this was a really effective way to do it, I think. It just goes on and on and on, and it is scathing. Um, I want to talk about this kind of medical analogy here, too, just because we're living through something similar. Um, I think that America right now is, uh, sadly, this is very pes pessimistic. It's very dark. Well, so excuse fair. me. No, you're being but I think America's it. dying. Um, and I think that instead of the conservative movement being kind of like a triage department who's like going to go all in and just make something happen and save it, we're acting too much like a hospice care center, right? We're oh. living under conservative hospice care right now where we're just going to let the patient die and we're going to sit by and just observe its death. And we will go down with the ship crying about tax rates, right? Um, when in reality, we actually have to step up and, and propose fresh ideas and new solutions. And like I said before, not just oppose the left, but actually get into something that is going to be radical. It's going to be uncomfortable, like, right, like what we were talking about uh, with the age of entitlement stuff, right? You have to be willing to put ideas out there that are new and bold and fresh and exciting and get people fired up about them. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, it'll make you feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes because it's like, oh, this isn't small government. But yeah, it's like, we're not we're not going to murder babies in America, right? If that means the government has to step in and stop you from murdering a baby, and that means big government, so be it, right? Uh, we can't just keep sitting by and letting the left kill America. Just like uh, Madison was saying, we can't just sit here and dilly dally while the federalists, the anti-federalists, waste all of our time and we end up with nothing, right? Yeah. And it's, it's like uh, Lincoln with the Civil War, too. I mean, he gets exactly criticism right. a lot. And it, even for this show, people have said, well, are you going to talk about what Lincoln did during the Civil War to I ignore the Constitution? That. I get that Someone called a lot. me out on that because I, 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 we did an episode where I said that when Lincoln suspended habeas corpus, the ends kind of justify the means. And I was poking through comments. Um, just out of curiosity, frankly, they're all very uh, effusive in their praise of you. They're a big fan of yours, just so you know. Um, oh. Anyway, but where was this? Uh, I think Instagram. Oh, anyway, someone was like, Morgan, why didn't you call out Connor whenever you said <laughs> that the ends justified the means when Lincoln suspended habeas corpus? That was so wrong. Blah, 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 blah. I was like, well, no, I really don't think it was wrong. I mean, I think we're literally in a moment of civil war. And it's like Lincoln recognized that we're not just going to let this crap fall down under the name of principles. We're going to fix it. We're going to step in and be the adult in the room. And like, maybe that means we have to pull a, a trump card out of our sleeve and do something a little bit radical, a little bit uncomfortable. But he did it and he was right. Lincoln yeah. is a great statesman. He's a great president. Yeah. I think after reading Age of Entitlement, you and I have discussed this. It just changes your perspective on the entire makeup of the country, of the future of the country, our past. And I see this as American history being a little sliver in yeah. all of human history. And then not only that, but the sliver of the 19... 30s, especially the 1960s to now, is a tiny, tiny millimeter of it's so human consequential. history in the big spectrum that we have. And we have, for some reason as conservatives, normalized or allowed things to be normalized that we really shouldn't. I mean, people look at the status quo and say, oh, well, that's just how things are. And then mm -hmm. moving on from that, we should have solutions or we should right. try and re conserve what we'd still have mm -hmm. in our favor. 
why would we even think like that? I yeah. see the 1960s as yesterday. Yeah. Let's make some changes. Yeah. Uh, people fail to recognize this, but America is an incredibly young nation, right? Mm -hmm. um, you look back at the ancients uh, and uh, things that predated us by thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and they've gone through so many changes, but usually the, the history exists in 200 to 300 year periods more often than not, right? So America is almost 250 years old, I believe. Um, we're in the 240s somewhere. We're kind of at that critical point. We're at the make or break point right now. And if we don't decide to do something about it, then it, it very well could fail. It could fail within our lifetimes, right? Uh, and so we reached a critical point in the 1860s. That was about 100 years after our founding, right? Um, a little less, actually. And we're kind of at another critical point right now. We were at a, a fairly critical point at our bicentennial back in the 70s, 1970s. Um, and it took Reagan stepping up and saying that we're going to actually, we're going to be bold and we're not going to paint with pastels. We're going to do a bold colors. It was a speech that he gave at the RNC about the colors of the flag. We're not going to paint with pastels of blue and white and red and pink and stuff. No, we're going to be bold about what our solutions are. We're going to be bold about loving America. We're going to be bold about restoring it and reviving it. Uh, and we're at another critical moment right now where we're seeing the right step up and make changes, but we got to get people to come along with them. Right. Uh, and that's yeah. about convincing them. Well, I would say the issue is people need to want this. They, they need, need to, to want, want better it. for themselves, for their future generations, for their kids, their grandkids. And nothing is going to inspire them more, in my opinion, than what the left is doing right now. Totally. And the results of the leftist policies that are being implemented, not only that, but the culture that the left is putting onto us. If you think about it, average Americans are affected in every single way. Every way. Every single aspect of their daily life, the cost of their groceries, the gas, the sports teams that their daughters are being put on to because of the trans issues, the indoctrination happening in the school classrooms, mm -hmm. the media that they're seeing on TV, the news that they're trying to get that's completely propagandized. And when they go and just buy products, everything is politicized now. So yeah. every aspect of our lives, it's being shoved down our throat as we're paying 100 something dollars to fill up our tank mm -hmm. just to drive back and forth for our daily commutes. And, you can't and I find think tampons. people are... I, people are getting pretty frustrated. Yeah. And then you look and see Kamala Harris give a little, oh, well, we are really care worrying about the, the important issues. Did you see that? Yeah. She had another situation where she was asked on the news. The important issues are obviously the important issues. What are you going to do about it? And she says, it is a very important issue and we're going we're gonna to prioritize the important issues. I want to just freak out sometimes. But I think that nothing is going to be more inspiring than that for Americans to actually realize that it's up to us. Um. Let's get back onto it because I want to yeah. keep this keep this going quickly. Uh, Connor, do you have any specific things? I'm trying to think of like maybe we should just give a little teaser about what he said, a, there, a favorite underlined section. Yeah, there's a really important part here where he's going through and he's asking all these rhetorical questions of, uh, you know, is an indefinite power to raise money dangerous in the hands of the federal government, the president, Congress, blah, blah, blah. He, he's going on asking all these rhetorical questions. More often than not, he's answering no yeah. um, and, and raising the objections that the anti-federalists have. But he ends that entire kind of diatribe by, by, by asking one specific question. He says, is the importation of slaves permitted by the new constitution for 20 years? By the old, it's permitted forever. So he's making the case for progress and he's making the case for incrementalism. And he's making the case for positive change here, saying that like, okay, if you want to be hung up on the fact that slavery is existing in the new constitution for 20 more years, you're going to ignore the fact that it exists in perpetuity under the Articles of Confederation. Right. So which is actually better? Like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here and, you know, refuse good for the sake of perfect. Like, we have to come to the same page here and, and create a compromise, which, again, like I said, we know how this ends. Um, but 
he's making the case here that these people are just acting like petulant children. The anti-federalists, God love them. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just a matter of principle or a matter of like philosophical ideas at this point. He brings the human aspect into it there at the very end and says, if we want to do something about enslaved people, then the Constitution is your best bet. Mm. The articles aren't, right? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and I refuse to hear that the founders are racist. I'm so sick and tired of that because they're not. Because look at this. We could have had slavery forever. They could have left it out. They could have, they could have made that the bargaining chip that they took off the table. But they didn't. They were committed to it. And we're going to get into the three-fifths compromise in, in paper 41, I think, somewhere down the road. But well, I'm really excited. And I brought it up on uh, other episodes where you have to remember at the time, slavery and forced labor mm -hmm. is really, if you think of it in the global concept the of norm. forcing others to work for you, and then the nobles and the higher-ups, whatever it may be, yeah. those higher classes exploited others. Yeah. That was happening around the world. It happened white people against white people, white people mm -hmm. enslaving white people under serfdom in mm -hmm. Russia. And you had other leaders that were also starting to understand and become students of the Enlightenment, like Catherine the Great. Right. And they also tried to end forced labor in their communities, in their countries, and it was physically impossible. And so the founders at least set up on a course the country to be able to handle this problem because and it was, was becoming a concept that as humans, we were starting to realize, oh, it does, it, life doesn't have to be this way. Our treatment of others doesn't have to be this way. The, the concepts of liberalism from the original sense, mm -hmm. this idea of freedom, yeah. of individual people, economic independence, those were all completely new concepts at the time. And God-given human rights. That we have taken for granted. Yep. I mean, we could have been born at any moment in human history and we were put on the earth at this moment. And not only that, on American soil. Right. How blessed. How incredibly um, blessed. Let's move on to the next thing. What's interesting, he, he brings this home for a lot of people by bringing up the fact that like, listen, you may not think the constitution is perfect, but we don't think it's perfect either. Right. We're just saying this is way better than anything else that could possibly be created. We have to find a starting point. And the anti-federalists are saying, scratch the whole thing mm -hmm. because of one little thing that they have right. here. And what he, he nitpicks throughout this paper. And you can't even agree what the one thing is. Yeah. And so that's part of the thing is the anti-federalists nitpick and give all these different little reasons of why I'm against it for this and I'm against it for this. And all of their reasons actually work against each other. None right. of it makes sense and right. is cohesive. So he says something along the lines of, listen, if you are in a house, you're not going to give up the house that you're in for a smaller, worse house just because that house that you might transition into has a porch outside. Right. And he, he's trying to say, just because it has one little aspect, it doesn't mean that you scrap the whole good foundation mm -hmm. in exchange for a crappier solution that has one good perk. Right. And that's what you're trying to say that we should do. Not you. Yeah, not you, Connor. Right. <laughs> I just pointed aggressively at Connor, but that's what he's saying about them. Um, Sorry. Do you have Anthony. anything you want to say, Connor? No, I mean I think that this is one of the most effective papers I've read so far in Ooh. my rereading of the Federalist Papers, and it makes a case stronger than I think any of the other ones have made in defense of the Constitution. I'm, like like Morgan said at the start of this, um, if you're a regular listener to the Freedom Papers, uh, I think that you're really going to like what's coming up because this is re really an exciting section. We're kind of leading up to some of the big ones. Um, you know, the ones that are in the 40s and the 50s, those are those are kind of the ones that you know about, right? Yeah. So this is uh, laying the groundwork for that. And it's a really exciting time to be a Freedom Papers listener. Oh, super <laughs> exciting time. I'm, I came into the studio like, let's go. I'm so it's true. excited. It's true. Um, it was a good day reading this morning just because I was like, what a morning. Yeah. Uh, wow, 38. So last concept that we kind of forgot to touch on is this idea that he's saying, listen, the Articles of Confederation already give the federal government the 
the power mm -hmm. to do a lot of the things that you guys are concerned about, but they don't give the government the energy to do so. And right. that, that earlier concept of energy of a mm -hmm. government, the ability to actually do it, one of these themes in Federalist 38 is the idea that if you're giving government a responsibility, you need to give them the power and energy and uh, means necessary to achieve the end that you're putting them in responsible and right. in charge of. You can't so, tell someone to build a house without giving them the tools to do it. Exactly. And so he's saying that that's the big difference between the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution. The Constitution provides the government with the means to actually achieve the mm -hmm. end that it should be responsible for in the first place. Uh, Connor, any closing thoughts? Um, no. Like I said, just excited for the ones to come because this is a really fun section. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys for watching. I hope that was fun. Like I said, this is one that you're going to want to read. Federalist yeah, 38. Connor, thanks for joining. We'll thank see you. you guys next time. And if you liked this, please share it. Okay. We're trying to educate all of America on the founding documents, uh -huh. our Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers that really led to what we have today. So Amen. I hope you guys share this with the people in your lives. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you.